Welcome to this episode of Build Your Tribe. You're going to love this one. It's really a unique episode. Welcome to Build Your Tribe with your host, Shalene Johnson. Box subscriptions. Are you one of the 16 million households that receives box subscriptions every single month? It's a relatively new and very competitive industry. Difficult to make it unless you've got a way to stand out. And what's inside is a curated collection of the best of a particular item that you trust the expertise of the person who's put the box together or the expertise of the organization. Well, one of the box subscriptions that my family loves is one from ButcherBox. Now, that might sound crazy to you, but what we receive each month is a curated package filled with grass-fed, grass-finished meats. But more importantly than that for us is we know that these are products not only of the highest quality, that the company that is curating this meat has a very high ethical standard for the treatment of the animals. Today, you're going to hear from the founder and CEO of Butcher Box. That's Mike Salguero. Mike has grown this business to over $30 million in less than two years. But what I love about Mike's story is that this isn't his first venture. The venture that he walked away from was one where he raised millions and millions of dollars in venture capital. So he's got this really unique experience, a different perspective from doing venture capital versus his own Kickstarter and bootstrapping a business. And today you'll get both perspectives. He's going to share with us the pros and the cons of both sides. This is a fascinating interview on so many levels. I mean, we talk about buying domains, what it's like to work with venture capital, what are some of the constraints. I mean, we just unpack so many cool details, things that you might not be thinking about right now in your business, but maybe you've had a question in your mind, like, what would that be like? And what would be the pros and cons? You'll have all of those answers today. And by the way, if you are interested in subscribing yourself to ButcherBox, Michael has also put together a special discount, a special offer for Build Your Tribe listeners. You get $20 off your first box plus free bacon. And it's not just any bacon. This is bacon from Heritage Breed Pork. The quality is insane. And so is the treatment and the care of the animals. So if quality means a lot to you, then take advantage of the special offer by going to butcherbox.com forward slash build your tribe. Michael, it is so awesome to have you here today. One of the reasons I think we're going to have a lot to talk about is you are one of those people that's passionate about a lot of things, which led you to the business that you're in today. So tell us a little bit about what you were doing before ButcherBox. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So my story getting into ButcherBox actually started with some elimination diets. My wife and I were really focusing on our diet, trying to clean up the way that we ate. And we did an elimination diet. We did a Whole30 diet. And both of these programs mentioned grass-fed beef and that grass-fed beef was truly the right way to eat beef. And I didn't really know anything about it, but started on the hunt to find grass-fed beef. Went to our local grocery store, couldn't find it. And I ended up finding a farmer who I'm from Massachusetts, who lived in New York and ended up buying a, what's called a quarter share, but basically it's about two trash bags full of meat. Ended up buying it in a parking lot. Sounds shady. (laughs) Yeah. We've had lots of customers say that they've had the exact same story. So purchased this meat in a parking lot, brought it home, and it was like too big to fit into my freezer. 
So I ended up sharing a bunch of stakes with a few of my friends. What were you doing at the time for business? Yeah, so I was running a company called custommade.com. And custommade was a venture-backed marketplace that connected mostly furniture makers and jewelers with consumers. So a consumer would go on and say, I'm looking for you know, my father's signature to be made into a pendant. Can you make it? And then jewelers would bid on the project and, and you'd hire them through our platform. Was custom-made your business or is it something you were running? No, it was my business. Okay. This is awesome. I'm so into this. Yeah. So we basically started, started in my apartment. We had bought a website that was started in 1996. Okay. This was 2008. So somebody else had started it, but it wasn't a marketplace. It was more like a listing service for various woodworkers. Okay. So, so many questions I've already stumbled upon. So let me start first with the basics. So you bought a website. There's a couple of things to unpack there. So when someone's buying a website, you can literally buy a domain and or you can buy a domain and all of the intellectual property right and the business associated with it. It sounds like in your case, you bought an existing domain. Is that accurate? Correct. Yes. Okay. And are you comfortable sharing with us what you paid for it? Absolutely. Yeah. So we bought it for $140,000. Okay. Money we did not have. So we ended up approaching the seller and we did sign a contract to for we put $5,000 down mm-hmm. and then it was 90 days due diligence where you're supposed to go and find out everything about the company. And we just ran around raising money because we, <laughs> we had, we didn't have the money to buy the site. We didn't tell him that we were like, yeah, we're, we're fine. We'll buy this tomorrow. But gave us the time to go out and find our initial group of investors and believers and people that believed in us to be able to bring this thing to fruition. I'm excited to talk to you about the venture capital experience. As a new entrepreneur, I am curious why, you know, if I'm looking at this and I'm you and I've got this idea for a business and I find this domain that I want and someone's already using it for an existing business and they put a price tag on it of 140K and you're thinking to yourself, well, you know, I could use this domain, or I could just go on GoDaddy or wherever and buy a domain for $9. Right. What in your research led you to make that decision that it was worth the investment in that domain name? Yeah. So we, we called it a shack in Manhattan. So we thought we were getting an amazing deal. Mm. So basically the, what the website, this was back in 2008, the website was a listing service for woodworkers who made custom stuff. And consumers could go on and look in California, look in Los Angeles, look in cabinets and find somebody who could help them with their project. And when you talk to these people, they're like, I get all my business from that website and I pay $35 a year for my subscription. Uh And literally, I mean, we talked to hundreds of people. And so the whole theory was, hey, let's purchase a website Let's reposition it. So, you know, like the owner had to upload photos for people rather than them being able to log in and do it themselves. There was just some tech things that needed to be changed and updated. And we believed that we were going to be the the team to be able to do that. There was an underlying business. It wasn't like we just wanted the domain name. Okay. Actually, funny funny enough, custom.com sold for, uh, I think it was like $140,000. 
a month after we purchased ours wow. and it was just the domain. So wow. we then felt like we got a really good deal mm-hmm. on the, uh, on the, on the project. But yeah, I mean, so basically you started it and immediately, so it's a, it's a marketplace, which means you have two sides of the equation. There's the consumers who you're trying to help find the best possible person to work for. And then there's the maker who's trying to find more work mm-hmm. and really both are your audience. So both are, your constituents that you have to worry about and build a great experience for and have customer service for and all that stuff. So definitely a a really interesting business. So we started that business as a subscription business where the maker would pay a fee to be on our site. Mm. And then over time, really, as we were trying to raise money and people kept saying no to us, um, I was in a meeting after I think we had gone on about 80 meetings that summer. I was in a meeting and I said to somebody, all we have to do is just stand in between these transactions and take a fee and we can grow a really big business. And they were like, Oh yeah. Like a marketplace. It's like, yeah. And then everything changed. The tide changed because at that time, Airbnb had come out, Uber was coming out. This is 2011. People were very excited about what the next two sided marketplace was. Mm. So our ability to kind of say that we were a two sided marketplace meant there was the spigot was open on venture capital. Raising venture capital for the same company, but it was how you positioned it. Yes, correct. Right. Brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> it was something. It was something. Um, <laughs> well, I know you've you know got these two experiences, the company that you're running today, ButcherBox, and this experience you had raising venture capital. You know, as an entrepreneur, I assume what would be the greatest downfall of being someone who's starting a business with venture capital is that there's other people actively involved. And most entrepreneurs, we are bossy pants. We know how things need to be done. We don't want your input. That's why we don't work for other people. Is that a fair assessment? Or can you tell us a little bit about that experience? For sure. Not only are they involved, but they also, when you think about venture capitalists, they have probably eight companies that they're working on. And then they see all these pitches and they're super busy. So their ability to actually know what they're talking about in your business is very small. Mm. So they're paid to have like really strong opinions, but those strong opinions don't aren't necessarily like they haven't really had the time to think about it. Mm. So it was always like, like, really, you didn't think we thought of, about that? Like, <laughs> I live and breathe this business. It's all I think about. Like, so is a venture capitalist or someone who's you know investing, is that the primary responsibility or is it an assumption that they're going to have a strong opinion? Are there venture capital arrangements where the person's providing their financial investment, but it doesn't include a say in how the business develops? Yeah, well, what you want is management control. So, I mean, we had that, but as you grow and as times get rocky, it's hard to it's hard to really keep that. Like nobody cares if you think you have control, like they're going to tell you exactly what they want you to do. Mm. And I think going back to your original question, the big difference for me or the big learning for me is not every business needs to raise a bunch of money. Mm. And when you're in it, you know, building a tech marketplace in Boston, I mean, everything I was hearing, everyone I talked to was, hey, you should raise money. Hey, you should raise money. Wow, this is really great. You guys should raise money. You know, every panel is about how to raise money. Every time I'm asked to talk to a class full of people, it's about raising money. Hmm. And there's just this obsession with like, how do you raise money and how do you like make it work? And we'll get to this eventually, but ButcherBox, when we started ButcherBox, I didn't raise any money and I didn't want to raise money. 
and basically bootstrapped the whole thing from scratch. Mm -hmm. And the reason why was because I was so angry at this industry that, you know, all props up this idea of raising money, raising money. And I wanted to go out and prove that I could do it without raising money. Mm, I love this. And what's really interesting is if you look at on the business side, if you look at box subscription companies or companies that are sending out a box of the month, you know, like Blue Apron stock is crashing. There's lots of deals happening in the space because people are running out of money. And a lot of these people just built up businesses that hemorrhage money and were able to keep it going by raising more and more venture capital. And ultimately, the music ends. And that's what we're seeing happen in the industry. Unfortunately, we're, you know, we, we've always focused on providing an amazing value to our customer with amazing quality, but also making sure that we make money because otherwise, like, we're just building a, a shell game. Did you dissolve custom made before starting ButcherBox? Was there a transition period? So custommade.com is still around. My mm-hmm. co-founder runs it and he has pivoted the site to jewelry mm-hmm. and they make it themselves. Mm-hmm. Ah. So one of the other big learnings of raising a bunch of money was, you know, when, so our last round of financing, we raised $18 million, which is a lot of money. And you get this pressure of like, okay, how are you going to spend that? You need to spend that really quickly so you can grow and then raise more money. All of a sudden we have 15 engineers and we have all these designers and all these people. And we didn't really know what we were supposed to do or how we were supposed to build the business because we didn't really have that product market fit. And so we built out this marketplace where the customer could say exactly what they want to get custom and they could find a maker who is willing to make it. But when you dig in deep enough, basically most customers don't feel like they have the know-how or the ability to specify exactly what they want. And most makers are frankly in their shops and aren't really like trolling the internet trying to find new jobs. They're artists. Right. And if they are trolling the internet trying to find good jobs, they're not necessarily the best writers. They're not necessarily the best salespeople. Mm-hmm. Um, so we built this system that just, it didn't work. I mean, the numbers were fine, right? Like they kept going up, but it wasn't clean and efficient and working the way it should have been. And so ultimately, my co-founder, which I agreed with, and I was there at the very beginning of this, moved to, hey, we're just going to produce jewelry. And you're just buying from us. And then they go and farm it out to a maker. And But for the customer, it's, oh, you want a signet ring with your family crest on it? Okay, cool. Here's the 10 that we've done. You like that one? Okay, great. Here's the price. Do you want to buy? Versus what we do currently. And I mean, they're doing an amazing job. They're producing an awesome product, super good quality, and are actually just focusing on a space, buying custom jewelry that's very fragmented. And because of that, lots of people are making way too much money versus, you know, marketizing and bringing it online, all that. So your story and your mindset's inspirational. I think a lot of entrepreneurs fall into one of two categories. Many of them are, they're so determined to prove that they can make it and that this idea is going to work that even when they realize, okay, this isn't a great idea, they won't jump ship. They will go down with the ship. Number one, or number two, it has become so tied to their identity that they feel like you can only ever have one passion or one purpose in your life. And I don't know how you feel about this. When people say, what are you going to be doing five years from now? I always say, I don't know. It's whatever I'm super passionate about. And I think it helps people. And I don't know what that is right now. It could be what I'm doing right now, but I don't know until I live it. And it seems to me, Michael, you are the type of entrepreneur who truly follows your passion. 
Absolutely. I follow my passion and I love the intersection of introducing technology and efficiencies to old world problems. So bringing custom furniture to life online or bringing meat directly from a farmer to the customer's door. I like to solve kind of larger issues and use technology and use our know-how to make that happen. My sister and her husband are great entrepreneurs. They however, have never worked in or done anything in the restaurant industry when they announced to everyone they were going to be opening a restaurant. And I just remember thinking, this has got to be really scary. You don't, you've never even worked in it. How do you know anything about it? So how did you get the confidence to uh, start a business in in an area? Because I'm assuming, I don't know, but I'm assuming you didn't have experience in farming and- No experience. First of all, where'd you get the confidence to do that and how scary was it? Yeah, so I guess back to the story a little bit. First time I got two trash bags full of meat, gave some to my friends. Second time I got three trash bags full of meat and gave more to my friends. The last time I bought a whole cow and sold it to eight or 10 people. And one of the guys was like, this would be so much easier if it was just delivered to my house. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Like, yeah, that would be so much easier. And so I started looking at it and I couldn't figure out how to make all the pieces work. And the way that I work as an entrepreneur is I always have a few ideas of a new business or a new thing to work on. And oftentimes I'm like, nah, I can't figure that out because of whatever reason. Okay, let's just put it on ice. So I actually put this business on ice twice because I couldn't figure out how to ship a frozen box of meat. First of all, procure the right stuff, but then ship it directly to the customer. And then I met the former head of operations of Omaha Steaks, who opened up a bunch of doors for us. And then one thing led to another and was like, huh, all right, let's try this out. When we started, we started with a Kickstarter campaign. And this was in September of 2015, so about two and a half years ago. And I honestly thought it was going to be a nice what I call side hustle, like a nice small business while I went and pursued my next big thing. And so we went out to raise $25,000 in Kickstarter. And I think we blew through that within 10 hours. (laughs) And then by the first week, we're at like 120,000. And then we ended up at 215 or 210,000 in backers, over a thousand boxes, and just people being super excited about this idea of getting grass-fed beef delivered to them. And and also, it became clear to us that grass-fed beef was not enough, that people really needed a solution for pork and for chicken. So we got going and, you know, I've really been growing ever since. And certainly, as far as the confidence goes, when there's a problem that nobody seems to be attacking, I don't know, I just get obsessed with solving Mm. it. And sometimes that means I have to step in and do something about it. And that's pretty much what happened this time. And, you know, we started, so we didn't have any, we had no backing, we had no financial means, we had no real, it was like, is this going to work or not work? And it was amazing how quickly it became like, oh, wow, this is a thing. You know, yes, this is going to work. The day after our Kickstarter campaign, the Today Show, today.com, their website did a blind taste testing with our product versus stuff that they bought at the local butcher. How did you get that to happen? No idea. It just happened. Oh, like, my goodness. Thank you, Jesus. Yeah, right. Exactly. Signed up a few hundred people on like day one. I was like, wow, this is this is crazy. And then it's just been, it really feels like it's a business whose time has come because the momentum has continued to pull us. And, you know, we're sitting now with tens of thousands of families who are receiving our product and 
we were talking before the call about how I have three kids and my home life is crazy and dinner is really important to my family and me being home for dinner is really important to my family and eating something healthy and good is really important to us. And this notion that we get to do that for, you know, thousands of families across the country that they're looking down, they're saying grace or looking down and seeing that meal and it's from us is truly inspiring and humbling and invokes a lot of fear because we're shipping frozen meat. So we got to make sure it like gets there and people are relying on us. And it's been a really, really, really fun business to be a part of. And, and we're also making a huge impact on the other side, on the farmers and on the, all the different collectives that we work with, all the different small farmers we work with because we're a subscription, they're not used to kind of a steady order. And it's really changed the way that they do their business as well, which has been great. It's been great for all sides of the equation and really fun business to build from the ground up. What has been the greatest learning lesson in this particular business? Like weren't expecting this and it turned out to be quite a setback. Grass-fed beef does not mean fed grass. You learned that the hard way. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So when we started, we found the best possible purveyor of grass-fed beef that we could find and started buying grass-fed beef. And the term grass-fed beef is federally regulated. So we knew that we were not giving people grain-fed beef. But as we started peeling back the onion and learning more, what I didn't know was that most companies who are approaching grass-fed beef in this country are trying to confine feed cattle Mm -hmm. grass. So it's a feedlot and they're feeding their cattle grass. Essentially, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it might be a smaller feedlot, but it's essentially it's exactly what people who are buying our product are trying to avoid. Mm. And that was a huge eye opener for us. For me, I was like, oh, my God. Now, how was that discovered? Was that discovered by customers, by yourself? So as we got, I guess, about six months in, nine months in, we brought in a, a meat guy, somebody who had done procurement in the tens of millions of pounds of meat. and. He started peeling back the onion and was like, oh my God, like, really? This is what we've been doing? Like, whew, geez. And it, it's not like, we certainly, I, I certainly wouldn't want to make the impression that we did any bait and switch or anything like that. Sure. It was all grass-fed beef, but it was, we talk about claims that we want uh, our meat that has lots of claims, lots of checkboxes. I think when people think of grass-fed, they think of out on pasture, happy cow, frolicking in the meadow. Yeah. Not like... Oh, yeah, they're technically being fed grass. They're just next to the ones that are eating corn. Mm -hmm. Or they're a dairy cow, which happens a lot in the industry, too. This is one of those areas that's it's complex. And there's a lot of, I think, intentional misleading of the consumer. Yep. And so I want to recommend for those of you listening who are curious about this, because you should be, you don't even realize what an effect this has on your health until you truly understand what's happening from a marketing standpoint of these terms. I encourage you to listen to the Shaleen Show episode where Mike and I go into this in great detail. So I will provide a link to that episode in the show summary for today's episode. But it's important to know that And we've even discovered this ourselves, our business now where we're producing things that people consume. That's like a whole nother ballgame when, I mean, just even the certification of organic and where these things are being packaged and how incredibly important it is that those standards meet our mission statement. For sure. I would think in your industry, that term And the way that people, it's like anything, people try to cut corners and they find a way to be able to call themselves grass-fed, that it's probably evolved in the last five years. So maybe 
initially when you were procuring grass-fed it might have truly meant grass-fed, but people are always trying to find a shortcut, find a less expensive way to produce it. More controllable is really what the, the meat industry is interested in in this country. It's, uh, it's obviously cost, but it's also control. The ability to be able to exactly know how big that animal is going to get to. And oh, okay. So I believe that the meat industry, the beef industry in the United States, so we're starting to see increased demand for beef. Mm-hmm. A lot of that is being driven by grass-fed and organic beef and kind of beef that's raised differently. Mm-hmm. And I personally think the worst thing the beef industry could do right now is to pull a fast one on consumers mm-hmm. for the sake of whatever. People are starting to trust beef companies again, and it's just it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. So what I tell people, and I'll tell your listeners too, is... Pasture raised, I believe, give it three years, I believe pasture raised will be the what everyone is looking for. Because hmm. pasture raised truly means out on pasture, not grass fed. Right. Well, you heard it here first. That's right. That's right. Having started a company from a bootstrapping standpoint and one as a venture capitalist, and with the venture capital, there's this feeling of urgency that you've got to invest the money right away, I assume, in agencies and, and talent And you're going to do that so fast and so furiously, it sounds to me, that it can also be so fast sometimes that you don't have time to slow down and say, okay, are these the right people? Is this the right agency? Right. However, when you're bootstrapping, you kind of have to wait until you have enough money to be able to hire that next piece. So has it meant slower growth? In terms of company growth, no. We've grown very quickly. In terms of employee growth Mm -hmm. probably tell me how that's been different for you like yeah sure and with your first company were you using agencies or were you hiring in-house mostly in-house in our first company this one is tends to be agency to start with and then in-house as we go along awesome a good example is our our meat guy right so when we started we had a guy who had done procurement and me but really we were just getting up to speed on like what do we really need to know and the omaha steaks guy was helping us but like we didn't know what we didn't know and once we got to, I forget, call it 25,000 pounds a month or something, we were like, I bet there's someone out there who just does this for a living <laughs> and they've got to be able to make up their salary just on like buying this better. Mm, yeah. And it turns out that we now have a way superior product, costs way less, so we're able to drive more value to our customer, which just works. I love the way you just described how you made that decision. Is there somebody out there who they're going to be able to make back their salary? In other words, this isn't going to cost us anything. I think so many entrepreneurs fail to look at those hires that way. They just say, I can't afford to hire someone to do this as opposed to reverse engineering it in the way that you did. Michael, you have an MBA. I do. Yes. How much of what you learned as an MBA <laughs> student are you able to, I love the laugh. Minimal. Are you oh, really? Okay. You already know the, the, the question yeah. and the answer. Minimal. Yeah. All right. Give me a percentage. Of what I learned getting an MBA that I'm able to use here. Yeah. Yeah. That's helped you to be successful. I would say, so I got my MBA at night while I was working full time at a different company. And one of the things that the MBA did teach me wasn't in a class or anything, but just managing my time, being hyper-focused on how I manage my time because I had work obligations and then go straight to classes. I'm not trying to be devil's advocate here, but 
if you were also, while you were working full time, having to manage your time by starting a business at the same time, would you not have learned those same skills? No, I, I would have. Okay. I would have. Just curious. Um, yeah, no, I probably would not have gotten my MBA if it wasn't some like a company benefit at the company I was working at. And if I didn't feel like I really needed to go be an entrepreneur. So I went to Epson, which is an entrepreneurship school. But I think I hear this a lot, like, oh, I've got this great idea, but like, I don't know anything about business. I don't have my MBA. Like, I think a lot of it ultimately is surrounding yourself with great people and just taking a step. My advice to entrepreneurs, to want to be entrepreneurs, to people who come up to me at parties and say, oh, you're in your business. Like, oh, I've got this idea, blah, blah, blah. So few people just take the one first step. I mean, so if you decide to take one step, you're above like 97% of the people out there because most people are like, oh, I don't know how to do that. Okay. And they just quit. Yeah. And for me, being an entrepreneur, it's fantastic. I wouldn't have it in any other way. It's hard. It's mostly hard because it's a very emotional game. It's regulating yourself, regulating your, your own emotions, your own discipline, their ups and downs. Well, at times you can only blame yourself. And mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. I think, frankly, everyone should try being an entrepreneur. Amen. Um, I used to say that. Now I kind of temper it because I think that really, as you said, intimidates. It intimidates those people who are so used to doing everything kind of right and perfectly that it sounds scary to be an entrepreneur. And I say, I don't know that everyone's cut out to be an entrepreneur, but I'm absolutely positive that in today's day and age, you're just silly not to be taking advantage of some passion or interest that you have and making a little extra income on the side online. Right. I mean, there's a way. And why not? Why wouldn't you? I do agree with you that you got to be okay with making it messy. Like just dip your toe in. You don't have to dive in head first. Be okay being bad. That's my number two piece of advice. Oh, I love it. Be okay being bad. So a lot of people want everything to be buttoned up when they launch. My example is when we first shipped our product, the very first boxes that left our facility were styrofoam. And my friends are like, styrofoam, really? Like you're shipping in styrofoam? Like, Mm -hmm. don't you know how bad that is for the environment? (laughs) I was like, yes, I do. I know how bad it is. We're definitely going to change it. But like, I'm not trying to disrupt the shipping industry right now. I'm trying to disrupt the meat industry and I can only handle so much right now. I can't get the box perfect before I have any customers because- that's great. Why would we, right? So yeah, and, th- and that's something that like broke my heart to ship in styrofoam, but really it was like, I'm not going to not ship. Right. When I think about the industry that you are in today, my greatest fear would be liability, right? Because yep. what you're shipping is a product that's grown and produced by someone else and that people consume. And consumables are scary. And we're also talking about something that you have to ship that there are foodborne illnesses that can develop just from how quickly the meat gets there, how long it sits there. I mean, how scary was that? And how do you manage that risk? Yeah, I mean, continues to be our biggest fear and risk. And I mean, lots of testing, lots of QA, lots of quality control, All of our plants have a USDA inspector on site all the time, and they're doing tons and tons of tests on a weekly basis, making sure that things are safe to eat. Interestingly, meat is actually pretty buttoned up in terms of the testing protocols in place. In order to have like a cutting facility, you really have to be very clean, and there's a lot of regulation around it. Conversely, fresh food, fruit, vegetables, that's just starting to really be more heavily regulated. 
we're dipping our toe in other things we can ship frozen. And one of the things that we're seeing very quickly is like, wow, there's a whole new host of risks associated with this. But yeah, I mean, I got to explain to people to not consume undercooked meat, to cook things through. And then with grass-fed beef, grass-fed is very unforgiving because it it has less fat. So if people overcook something, that's a problem because it doesn't taste as good as a normal steak might. Really threading the needle in terms of what we're providing for our customer. To that new entrepreneur who is also bootstrapping their business venture, what is or who perhaps is the first in-house employee they need to bring on board and who or what type of agency would you say would be the first agency they need to consider if they really want to get their foundation right? The person who came in first was this guy, Mike Philby, who is a marketing guy. And he was able to take a lot of the communications, marketing, writing, emails, all of that stuff off my plate. And that for me was was huge because... There's this whole whole business that you will, you know, there's the procurement side, there's the strategy side, there's so many other things to be thinking about that it's it's oftentimes hard to um, hard to handle it all. So So when you brought on a marketing person, you brought that person on full time as an employee, I assume, or a consultant perhaps. And was that legit like the most important hire you made in your first six months? That's what I'm looking for. Like for the person who's listening right now and They've just got this brilliant idea. And right now they're everything. They're the CPA. They're the virtual assistant. They're the, the person who's writing and creating the email funnels. They're setting up the website. They're also doing shipping and fulfillment and the marketing. It's their first six months. You got to get this person in place. What would your recommendation be? I guess, first of all, we never did the shipping and fulfillment ourselves. We always contracted that out. Mm -hmm. So, and there are firms out there that do a lot of this stuff and, I fully, I'm a big supporter of outsourcing everything you can because you're not the best at something. Your highest and best use is kind of orchestrating the whole thing. Amen. For me, the building a market is always the thing that I think is the most important. There's no meat to procure if you don't build a market. Mm. There are no emails to send if you don't build a market. How do we go about marketing and what do we do and how do we really leverage that up with another body is where I think to start with, you get your most bang for your buck. Did you bring on a digital marketer or is he a marketing specialist in general? Or was it someone specifically with digital marketing expertise? He was a guy who I mentored whose business was in the process of folding mm-hmm. that he had, he had dropped out of college to work on. And that was it. I mean, we didn't, he wasn't like a digital marketing specialist. He wasn't like, he. I just thought he had horsepower and mm, love it. brought him in. It was his passion. So he's going to figure it out. He's going to figure out what we need to do. Yep. And brought him in cheaply and gave equity instead of big salary. Mm-hmm. And he just started working. And then as we've grown, we've just been able to, you know, he's still with us and still growing. And, and what was the first critical agency that you looked to add to the portfolio? Well, the sh- I mean, the shipping and fulfillment for sure, mm-hmm. right? Because we're shipping frozen. So I probably looked for a day to see if we could do the shipping ourselves <laughs> and was like, no way. I got to <laughs> I gotta get this out there. We actually built our website with an agency. Mm-hmm. The whole website was built with third-party agency. Mm-hmm. After about a year, that agency folded and we took all the people and now they all work for us. Hey, but, hey. Um, <laughs> yeah, for the first year we were agency. How about for your yeah, advertising? Uh, Facebook advertising, say, or? No, so actually we didn't start Facebook advertising for a very long time. Mm. 
probably a year and a half into the business before we started doing Facebook advertising. Because we didn't have any money, because we bootstrapped, we were looking for what I would call box one profitability, meaning the first box we ship you needs to be profitable. We, mm. we need to make cash on it. Mm. So a lot of these meal kit companies, the whole game is, okay, they'll spend $200 to acquire you as a customer and then hope that you stay for eight months and mm-hmm. then they make back their money in month seven. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, right. but it all relies on like their ability to keep you, their ability to drive down or to drive up margins, to do a whole bunch of stuff, which is like for us, because we didn't have any cash, it was literally hey, we need to make sure that this is profitable day Mm -hmm. one. How did you find your initial customers then? Influencers. Fabulous. So basically what happened was there's a guy, Chris Kresser, who's a paleo doctor, Mm -hmm. who for I don't even know what reason, I think we reached out to him, but tweeted about our Kickstarter campaign. And we saw a whole flood of signups. And he was just like, oh, this is cool, and just send something. And we saw a whole bunch of people sign on to our Kickstarter campaign. Mm. And we were like, that's interesting. It was the most interesting thing that we had seen. And so we reached out to him and then a whole bunch of other people and said, you know, hey, we'd love to work with you. We'd love to get the word out. We know that you promote or talk about how important grass-fed beef is, and we're, the, we're building out this service. And yeah, that's how we grew. That's great. At least into the point where we felt like there wasn't really a lot of other people to within that space to speak with. Well, this has been fascinating on so many levels. And I'm, again, going to encourage people, because they care about your health too, and especially you should care about your brain health. If you're an entrepreneur, someone who's even considering starting a business, you need to think about your health. And you've got to consider that as an important quotient when you're building a business. So I'm going to encourage you to listen to the Shalene Show episode that I'll link to in our show notes, where Michael and I kind of break down the difference between the quality of meats that you're eating and why it matters. But Michael, if I can hit you up with one last question, it would be this. As someone who has followed their passion, and you also mentioned in the beginning of our interview that you are always, quote, with a few ideas in your head, like just kind of thinking about what could be next. Is there something on the horizon for you that doesn't at all relate to what you're doing with ButcherBox? Yeah, there is. <laughs> and that's okay, right? Totally. We're actually, we're going to fold it into ButcherBox. Okay. Well, Michael, this has been incredibly informative. I can't thank you enough for your time here today. I know we also have a, a special for the listeners of Build Your Tribe, and you can find access to that by going to butcherbox.com forward slash build your tribe. And Michael, can you tell us a little bit about what that includes? Sure. It's uh, $20 off plus free bacon in your first box. And you can go on the website and choose what kind of box you want. We have beef, chicken, and pork. And there's two different types of boxes. There's the curated approach where we choose the stuff that is the best and the most seasonal for your box that month, or the custom approach where you choose exactly what you want shipped to you. We're huge fans. My son is a college student and he's also an entrepreneur. Also puts a lot of great content here up on Build Your Tribe. And that's something that, you know, with his own money, he's invested in that. And I think that's really important that people consider how incredibly impactful what we're putting in our bodies, how much of an impact that has on our brain health, on the way that we live and the legacy that we leave. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for us, we have lots of customers who are single and just have this for themselves or are really interested in feeding their family better and we're on various diets, various cleanses. Um, 
really a wide swath of, of, of people. And uh, it's um, better for health, better for the environment, better for the animal. It just kind of wins on many different levels. Let's do it. Thank you so much for being here today, Michael. Yeah, thank you.